the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love, our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world, which we view through the prism of our Catholic social teachings. Tom Dobbins is with us as he is every week. He's the one who gets us the interesting guests that share with you, our listeners, important perspectives on topics that are very, very critical in our world. So, Tom, thank you for doing that. So, Tom, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do this because I think our listeners need a different voice. So, Tom, when we talk about looking at things through the prism of our Catholic social teachings, give our listeners just a little bit of what are those themes or values or important things that we articulate as part of our Catholic social teaching? Sure, Monsignor. Well, first of all, you know, we have um, the two um, first principles of Catholic social teaching are the life and dignity of the human person, which we believe that every person created by God has inherent dignity, um, cannot be alienated. It, it's, it's part of who we are because we're made in the image and likeness of God. And as a corollary to that, we also, so in a sense, human life is always sacred. But as a corollary to that, we also believe in that we're called to, uh, to respect our families, our communities, and to participate in those families and communities. So in a sense, in Catholic teaching, human life is also inherently social. So we have both of those components. They kind of form the foundation of Catholic social teaching. And, and then the other principles kind of grow out of that. You know, one thing is uh, a belief in human rights, but also a corollary belief that with those rights come responsibilities. You know, we have, if we have rights, you know, you have to have responsibilities that wind up going along with that. Um, we also believe that the poor and the vulnerable have a special claim on our, on our, our consciences and, and that we have a special responsibility to be sure that they're being taken care of. And that goes all the way back, Monsignor, to the very origins of God's covenant with the Hebrew people and following all the way through with how Jesus ministered to. Um, we also, you know, God in the Bible is a worker. He labored for six days and he took the seventh day off. So we also believe in the dignity of work and the rights of workers because we too are called with God to contribute to the building of a just and, and compassionate society that we kind of talk about on just love. Um, we also believe that human concerns are not just our neighbors who are in our immediate, our immediate vision, but also those who live across the world, right? We're all human beings. We're all created in God's image. So we have a belief in solidarity. And last but not least, Monsieur, and this is the one, this is when my tree hugger, inner tree hugger comes out. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, is a uh, call to care for God's creation. You know, God gave us this earth, uh, not, you know, to, to spoil, but he gave it to us as stewards. We're called to care for it. Um, with respect and, and to care for it as the gift that God gave it to us. So, so in essence, those are kind of the seven principles of Catholic social teaching that we, we try to talk about every week on Just Love. Well, Tom, I'm so delighted that you did that, and I'm never going to talk about them again because you did them <laughs> so well when we want to give our listeners just a little bit of an update and a briefing on that. Um, you're the man because you you did those so very, very well. You know, the other thing, talk just a little bit about, um, you have been involved in the Catholic Social Ministry mm-hmm. Conference. Um, tell us a little bit about that, because that's um, something that um, just happened right. um, last week. So what is that all about? 
Well, it's it's when a group of kind of Catholics who are concerned about the social ministry of the church, and this is very broadly construed, you know, they're parishioners, they're people who work for Catholic charitable agencies, they're people who work for dioceses, they kind of all come together. And and we were all together last week in Washington, D.C. for the Catholic social ministry gathering, about 500 of us gathered. And what we did was we heard um, conferences and we heard uh, presentations and we heard, you know, kind of people talking all about um, those social teachings of the church and how we wind up applying them. But I think even more importantly, Monsignor, was we went over to Capitol Hill and we met with our state delegations, be they in the Congress, our Congress people or our state senators to kind of talk about those issues. And some of the issues we talked about, Monsignor, we 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 talked about supporting um, children and families by strengthening child tax credit. Uh, we also encourage people to support um, uh, development age uh, for uh, international humanitarian relief. And we also talked about passing legislation to provide humanitarian protection uh, to parolees uh, from Afghanistan who have entered the United States. You know, these were people who wound up coming in to the United States. They only had temporary (laughs) status when they first came in. And yet if they were returned to Afghanistan, they'd be in great danger. So we kind of went over to Congress and talked a little bit about that. So we, we tried to put our values into practice once here. So it was really, I thought it was really quite special. And, uh, and it's something I look forward to participating in every year. Tom, thank you so much. I appreciate your kind of sharing that with our, with our listeners. Um, it's not probably the most well-known of the gatherings um, in the country, but very important one, because as you mentioned, it gathers people from throughout the country who are looking at what's going on in our society and how can we impact that in a positive way uh, based upon the perspectives that you articulated earlier of our Catholic beliefs about the dignity of the human person and additional others. Well, listeners, I am excited. Our new guest is joining us is Gideon Taylor, the Executive Vice President and CEO of the Jewish Community Relations Council in New York. And a little bit of a disclaimer as um, as Gideon Taylor joins us, why I'm so excited. I'm excited because the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York is an incredibly wonderful organization, important organization, and a very, very important partner with Catholic Charities in New York on a variety of things. And I'm excited because Gideon Taylor is a new colleague. I knew his predecessor for a number of years, had a wonderful um, kind of relationship with him. And I've just been so lucky in the past few months to get to know a little bit Gideon Taylor, and I'm looking forward to learning a lot more. And so I figured one of the things I would do is, since he's got such a talented background, a wonderful portfolio of what he is about, I figured I'd kind of cheat, do a little bit of double duty. I'd learn a lot more about my new colleague, but I'd share it with our listeners throughout the country. So with that, let me say thank you to Gideon Taylor and welcome him on to Just Love. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I know there's a long personal friendship, organizational connection, relationship, and I'm I'm just privileged to be in this position and delighted to be able to continue uh, these relationships, both personal and, and organizational. Great. And, commun- and communal. <laughs> Great. Well, and Gideon, I can tell from your accent 
that you're a fellow Bronxite with me, aren't you? <laughs> nah, not from the Bronx, <laughs> not Brooklyn, but close. But I, I guess if it was anywhere, it would be the Bronx. Uh, <laughs> like a lot of my fellow countrymen, uh, as you may have detected, there is a small lilt. Uh, they tell me in Ireland it gets a little less every time, but uh, they tell me in Ireland I sound like a New Yorker, and in uh, New York they tell me I sound a little bit Irish. So uh, I guess. So, so Gideon, give our listeners before we get into some some uh, important topics and serious topics, give our listeners just a little bit of perspective. How did you? Um, uh, how did you kind of manage to begin in Ireland, wind up here? Give us just a brief synopsis of uh, your your cv sure so you know my it's it's a small jewish community as you can imagine in ireland as i tell people there's more more jews on my block uh here in new york than in the whole of ireland so but, um, but Gideon, if it's such a small community how do you manage to elect the mayor yeah, the mayor, uh, it, uh, a couple of government ministers, uh, the president of Israel. Uh, we, it's a small uh, club, but has sent out to the world uh, a lot of uh, people, very active, dynamic communities. Probably when I was growing up, about 2,000 Jews. That was oh. it. Um, and uh, as you say, the mayor was Jewish. And in fact, uh, later on, after he was uh, mayor of the Briscoes, as a lot of people, I'm sure, are of your listeners, certainly the older generation probably even remember the name. Um, but a later generation, my father included, went on to go into, uh, the, into the parliament. And later, my father was actually the first Jewish minister in the government uh, of Ireland. Oh. Uh, so when he was a child of immigrants, my grandparents, his parents were born in Poland. They had escaped and come just before the Holocaust. Um, they went to England first and then came to Ireland. So that was where a lot of the Jews came. Some Jews had come much earlier and some had come in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and he grew up in Dublin, was very involved in the Jewish community and life in Dublin. And after he married my mother, who had, was from England, and her family, her grandparents were immigrants. She had grown up uh, as an, a, a, a grandchild of immigrants. Um, they became involved in political life and he ended up uh, as the first minister, uh, minister of equality and law reform. And so it was a very wonderful place to grow up as a Jewish community. Uh, for those of your listeners who have not made it to Ireland, uh, I can only uh, recommend it. It's just a, a, a wonderful country, a changed country, very different from the country I grew up in. Um, but with such, uh, I, you know, it was it was a wonderful place to grow up and uh, still have deep friendships and roots and uh, there. Okay. Well, thank you for that. That that was very enlightening. And let's jump forward a little bit. But you've worked with a number of, in leadership positions in a number of Jewish organizations. And I think for our listeners, without you know going into a great deal of detail, I think it would be very enlightening to for them to just know a few of those organizations and a little bit about what they do and their mission in furthering. Um, what we would call a just world. So just briefly, give us a little bit of some of those places, your stops in your career. <laughs> sure, sure. And it's um, the first one where I sort of fell into completely by chance uh, was a wonderful organization called the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, um, a historic organization that started in 1914. So it went back a long time dealing with uh, crises in Europe at the time. It works. Uh, it's based here in the United States, but works overseas. Uh, it works both with Jewish communities uh, all around the world, um, but also has non-sectarian programs. And for a period of time, I um, was 
in charge of the non-sectarian programs, where we worked with a number of aid agencies, international aid agencies, including, I might add, the Catholic Relief Services, uh, which was a close partner uh, of uh, JDC. And we worked together um, in Rwanda. Um, I spent time in Africa, in Eastern Europe. Um, and I also worked with Jewish communities uh, in distress, which was an important job for the Joint Distribution Committee. At the time I came in, there were Jews in Ethiopia um, still trapped uh, in Ethiopia, unable to to leave. And, and we've been waiting for thousands of years to leave, in fact. The Joint Distribution Committee set up an operation, worked there, and slowly we worked, and that was my job when I first came, very young, very green, and I was sent to Ethiopia, and uh, I worked on the airlift, the big, huge airlift called Operation Solomon, you may remember, where 14,000 Jews were airlifted in one day in the midst of a civil war, a brutal civil war in Ethiopia, and they came to Israel, which was the one of the second of the two big exoduses that brought Ethiopian Jews to Israel, a miracle, and it, today a miracle, and for those of your listeners, who have been to Israel, and I hope others will have a chance to get to Israel, to see Ethiopian Jews, part of Israeli society. Um, and I saw, I mean, I saw them in their villages, cut off um, the Jews that I had dealt with, had most of them had never, I was the first white person that they had seen, cut off in remote areas, but had kept alive this tradition of Judaism, their connection to Israel or Jerusalem. For them, they called it Jerusalem. This was their dream for thousands of years. And I was privileged to work with them, to help them on their way and on their journey. And I, you know, I was a kid, I knew nothing. And I suddenly found myself in the north of Ethiopia in this village and people started coming um, from the villages. Uh, it was just after the civil war. And I was there, I who could barely cook an egg, look after myself in charge of a thousand people. But it was part of the journey and what a privilege. So that was really one important part of my life and the shaping part of my life. So Gideon, how did how did that community of diaspora wind up in Ethiopia? So you know what? There's that's one of the one of the unknown stories. There's different legends. The the tradition, the some one of the stories of the Ethiopian Jews is that they are the union of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, and oh. that they are descendants of from there. Uh, that's sort of one of the historical stories. More likely Jews, um, maybe Yemenite Jews, um, and there was a community in Yemen, a star community in Yemen, had traders had come um, across, you know, thousands of years uh, uh, earlier, and maybe from the dispersal um, from the temple, lost in the shrouds of history. Um, but the commitment, so deep and pure, you know, untouched. And I think that was what was so beautiful. There was an elderly um, Kess, they called him, who's a rabbi who led his people and he they walked for that there were no roads to the area where they were coming from this particular group i was dealing with they walked for three weeks bringing with oxen and what possessions they could carry and i said to him i said why how how did you come how did you leave behind everything after thousands of years and he said we heard that israel that jerusalem had opened a place And what he meant was an embassy. There was an embassy that opened up. And he said, and we knew after all of these years of waiting, our time had finally come. (laughs) That was it. And it was, if you want to see faith, I I have never in my life seen, I've seen faith. I've seen people of incredible faith, but faith of belief 
uh, it, it, beautiful. And just to crown, I don't want to, <laughs> to meander off, but just one more story sitting in Please. this. Yeah, okay. So we, we said we had this compound. See, because you know what you've just done, Gideon, and it was very clever of you. You you have now ensured that you will have to come back sometime because we're not going to get to everything, which I'm delighted. Tom, remember, we're booking him again for, <laughs> for the future. <laughs> I'm delighted. I, I could talk for hours, so <laughs> I, I can fill up your whole series. And you're not um, even a rabbi. No, <laughs> not even a rabbi. <laughs> so I just one more, I just to tell you on this. Please. So I sat with this Kest, Kest Taya, and he was probably 90 or something. I, I don't know. And someone was translating for me. And then he went, the group, this group was there at the time was about 500 had arrived in. And I had sent out these trucks to the, to the, basically with a road, with a path where they had trekked into. And as far as the road would, could go and brought them in. And so they were in the compound and he addressed them in this compound. And he said to them, he said, the journey that we are making, and this guy was whispering in my ear, and I still remember it to this day. He said, the journey that we are making here he said, is like the journey that the children of Israel made in the desert. And I'm thinking <laughs> the journey, the children of Israel in the desert. And I see that what they have carrying, the food that they had was what they called kita. And basically it was unleavened bread. It was matzah. That's what it was. That's what they had baked before they came. They came with this kita, which was one of the prime food that they were using for the journey. And then he continues on and he says to them, he says, the help that we are receiving in this place is like the manna that God gave to the children of Israel in the desert. And I am sitting there. I'm, I was, I guess, 21, 22. I, I kid, knew nothing, no experience of the world. And I'm, th- I'm sitting there. Even I still remember this day like yesterday to, comp- to, to even be compared to be part of something, a journey as biblical as that. That's what took me into Jewish communal service. <laughs> That's why these all these decades later, I'm still uh, in Jewish communal <laughs> service. Uh, um, yeah. What a people, what a nation, and and what a privilege to have a chance to do my tiny little piece uh, in wow. that journey. Thank you. Gideon Taylor, the executive vice president and chief executive officer of the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York. So Gideon, okay, let's jump a little bit to the to the present um how'd you how'd you wind up now in this position so i had one more position and i won't <laughs> i won't okay. take as long but it was a privilege i also fell into <laughs> everything in my life i've fallen into pretty much which was um the uh the world of holocaust restitution okay. so the joint distribution committee helped holocaust survivors and through that i became the executive of the claims conference uh, the conference on jewish material claims against germany which was the organization that was set up to negotiate with germany after the holocaust for reparations for Holocaust survivors. And um, I was still pretty young. It was about 10 years later, but <laughs> it was just at the time when things were, archives were opening up, the Swiss banks, the whole issues, some of your listeners may remember the issue when all documents came out showing what they and German companies and others had done. And it opened up this world of restitution. The Claims Conference was a historic organization um, with a really important moral, philosophical, it was legal, it was administrative, it was all of political, it was all of these things in one. 
And um, I had the rare opportunity to become the CEO. I was invited to become the CEO. And that's where I spent um, uh, my formative years as an executive in the Jewish world before I came to JCRC. But in the small Jewish world that we have, the president of the claims conference at that time, his name was Rabbi Israel Miller. I don't know if you've ever met him, better known as the father of Michael Miller, who is my predecessor at JCRC. So I knew Michael, my JCRC predecessor, uh, through his father. And, and as you can imagine, a wonderful, inspiring figure dealing with the toughest, most difficult moral, philosophical challenges uh, to rec- firstly to how do you compensate something, someone for what was impossible? And then how do you allocate money? How do you decide who needs more? And obviously it's a world you know well in Catholic charities, but to apply on top of those struggles and the philosophical moral issues, the Holocaust and how do you translate what, what is perhaps the greatest philosophical and moral challenge that the world has faced in generations, the all everything, the challenge of the Holocaust, to translate it into something base like money? And I used to say the Claims Conference was the place where money meets morality. And it's a hard place to be, but an important place to be. And that's where I learned a lot from Michael Miller's father, Israel Miller. And that's what uh, brought me closer to working with the world. And in that world, I worked with the New York Jewish community. It's an international organization and still existing today. And I currently serve as the lay president of the Claims Conference. So I'm still involved in a lay capacity. I, I succeeded Michael uh, Israel Miller as president. So, uh, <clears throat> so, but, Gideon, so Gideon, now I'm going to have to interject a little bit of personal uh, story because you brought it up. Um, when I was a young a uh, priest in Washington Heights. In Washington Heights, Fife, the first Jewish rabbi whom I met was Israel Miller. Ah. When he was the senior vice president of Yeshiva University. University. And we served on the same community board of a community organization that we put together <clears throat> for neighborhood preservation up there. And I have said this to your predecessor, and I've said it to many people. To this day, the most inspiring religious leader I have ever met was Rabbi Israel Miller. Uh, just an incredible, um, incredible person. And I remember at meetings, um, he would say very little. Until the end. And then there was nothing more to say because he had he had he had gotten it right. And you just said, amen. And you you solved it. So it's so beautiful for me to hear, though. You know, it's so interesting and so beautiful to hear this story from a different perspective, because this was exactly my experience as I came into the claims conference. And there, as you can imagine, the debates were heated and strong. You were dealing with people who were survivors and who were non-survivors. You were dealing with people from Israel, from Europe, uh, from the United States, reform, conservative, orthodox, uh, a good uh, from across the spectrum of Jewish life. And what were we discussing? How to deal with the money of those who had perished. So you can imagine the emotional depth, the philosophical argument and, and personal pain that went into those discussions. And Israel Miller would exactly would listen, 
would be there as a calming influence would to hold the organization together itself was a challenge and to do it and then to wrap up we would have these meetings these annual board meetings and he would bring together everyone he would lay out a path he would heal what were often difficult wounds because this was a hard job and still is and I am a very poor, poor substitute as president for the claims conference uh, from him. I learned and I think I learned what it is, as you also saw, how it is to bring people together, which I think is what unites so much of 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 what those of, you know, what, yeah. what you and others yeah. do and strive to do. And it's just well, wonderful to have models like like this to look at. Yeah. And, and so fun. I was I mean, this was my first assignment as a priest and. He, I believe at the time, may have been the president of the President's Conference. There was a group called that and uh, yes. very. And I said to him at one meeting, I said, you know, I really don't. I mean, I'd like to understand more about the situation of Israel, the Middle East. I just don't know. He said, come over someday for a tuna fish sandwich and we'll talk about it. And. I did. And he invited, we had tuna fish sandwich and I'll never remember, never forget this. His assistant comes in in the middle of me said, um, Rabbi Miller, there's a call I think you should take. And he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm here. He said, she said, it's from the president of the United States. <laughs> I said, <laughs> Rabbi Miller, please, I'll finish my tuna fish sandwich in peace. <laughs> so it was. Um, so listen, we just have a few more minutes, but I would like you to say a little bit more broadly about reparations, because that is, and I know I think you're teaching that, or you have taught that yes. at Fordham. And uh, let me just say it. It's a controversial topic. And I know we're talking about reparations, restitutions from Germany, but now it's on the table with regard to Afro-Americans, slaveries. Could you just give our listeners a little bit of a, you know, a, a tutorial on it so that when they hear the conversation, they might be at least better informed about what is being talked about? Sure. And it's, uh, as you say, I'm only delighted as my, as I grew up in a very Catholic Ireland, I think it's so appropriate that the place that I teach is the Fordham Law School, <laughs> which is uh, a, such a wonderful institution. And uh, I'm so privileged to be, uh, to have a chance, uh, to have a chance to teach there. Look, I think reparations, as you say, it's emotional, it's complicated. The piece, the first thing that I say to everyone, and I know it's counterintuitive, is, and I used to say it in negotiation, I'd sit down in a negotiation with the Swiss banks or with German industry, and I would talk about the wrongs and what happened and the people. And then I would say, it's not about the money. And people would say, yes, yes, yes. Or journalists, I'd try and explain to journalists and to others. And they'd say, yes, yes, yes. But how much do you want? How much are you looking for? And I would say, it's not about the money. And I think the most important thing to understand about those who seek reparations is that for most people, it's about history, it's about acknowledgement, it's about recognition. And unfortunately, in our world, the medium through which we tend to measure everything or a lot of things is money. And it's a very poor medium 
to evaluate and to deal with and to address wrong. And there are other ways. What's said, how things are spoken about. Um, uh, just this morning, I was at an event uh, dealing with the issue of a plaque to uh, Marshall Pétain. Who, who collaborated uh, with the, uh, German, the Germans. There's a plaque in New York. We would like it removed about history. The reparations is very broad and very wide. And I think the only thing I would urge listeners as they hear the discussions and debates, and some issues are Holocaust survivors are, uh, many of them were alive at the time to get reparations. When you deal with issues of slavery, obviously it's later. Then the argument, the counter argument is yes, but the effects are still felt today. But I think just the way to frame this and think about it is, is this is bigger and wider than money. And how does it, how do we as a society want to address things? How, what legacy do we want to leave? And that's the lens that's important for people to look at it. Anyone who would like to come to my class, <laughs> we have many, many long discussions, Native Americans, uh, Guatemala, the international courts. It's, a, it's an incredibly complex, beautiful subject, interesting, challenging, difficult, moral, philosophical um, but ultimately, it's about how do you balance and find justice and in what ways? It's yeah. not simple and it's not black and white, uh, as unfortunately, it sometimes gets portrayed. You know, Gideon, it's it's interesting because that is really helpful to me, that that simple phrase, it's not about the money, that that is a really wonderful perspective. And as you said, it's complicated. And I'll, I'll add to the complicating. I'm not going to add to the complicating because you already said it. And yet it's not about the money, but we use money as the medium right. to to uh, to deal with it. And that's where it so to you. These are my words, not yours. So it's not really pure. There's a lot of mixed right. stuff there. And. From a Catholic perspective, where we believe in um, in sin as a reality, there are those involved in it who who for whom it may be about the money, and and it that's where it gets right. so complicated in in trying to figure it out. So, but thank you for sharing that 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 with our listeners. Yes, yes. So, I... all right. So, listen. You have given us more than enough time, and I recognize for our listeners that we are taping this on a Friday afternoon, and so I want to make sure that we are respectful of that. And since you opened the door so wide, you're going to be back. So we have time to deal with your current work and what you're working on there. But I, Gideon Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, and I'm just delighted that you are my new colleague at the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York. Well, thank you. And it's likewise. And I think the there's a long history between the Jewish community and the Catholic community. I know I felt it growing up in Ireland and I feel it here in New York. And I think there's those deep, warm roots and connections are ones I look forward to helping to build and strengthen and grow. Thank you very much for being with us. Gideon Taylor, Executive Vice President and Chief Executive Officer of the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York. Tom, I think it's time for us to take a break. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more, it will be more compassionate. And that's what we'd like. We'd like a world fairer and kinder. Uh, there are a lot of different ways to say it. Justice, compassion, love, charity, all of those things, whichever word you like. But it basically means that we're caring more for ourselves we're caring more for one another. It means that we're letting God into our lives. It means that in addition to caring, we're making sure that the dignity of myself, the dignity of my neighbor, well, God can worry about his own dignity. And <laughs> so um, that that is respected, recognized, and that is allowed to happen in the world. Um, now, the next topic that we're going to talk about is one which is really, really challenging. And it is some of the difficulties, the unrest, the problems that there are in certain African countries. And so we're going to be speaking about South Sudan. And Pope Francis will is visiting there. And so it's appropriate to kind of try to learn a little bit more about it. And I'm delighted that we have as our guest to be to speak to us about South Sudan, uh, Brian Adeba, who is the deputy director of the Century, and will speak with us about that. Uh, Brian, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you so much uh, for hosting me on your show. Okay, well. Ryan, I have to make a little bit of a, um, you know, a little bit of a confession. I'm not sure I know, well, I know I don't know as much about Africa as I should. And um, I am pretty sure our listeners maybe don't. So could you begin, Ryan, I know you're the Deputy Director of Policy at the Century, but could you just give us the brief little bit of history of South Sudan. I mean, I know a little bit and how it split off and things like that, but just give our listeners a little bit of a, of a background so that they can maybe put things a little bit in context. Absolutely. Um, South Sudan is uh, arguably one of the most uh, troubled uh, countries uh, on earth um, at the moment. Um War started uh, uh, in 1955. Uh, the South was part of Sudan at, at that time. It was predominantly Christian, and the northern part of the country was predominantly Muslim. Um, there were legacies of colonialism, and then after the uh, uh, after colonialism ended in 1956, uh, the 
government in power was mostly Muslim and uh, an Arab in orientation. And so uh, the South was excluded uh, from governance, discriminated against uh, based on uh, racial and also religious issues. The South was predominantly Christian and, 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 um, and the North was Muslim. This exacerbated around the late 80s where you had an Islamist government in power uh, and that was overtly um, discriminatory and very uh, uh, antagonistic to, to anything that was not Islamic in orientation. And after that, of course, um, there was a war waged by the Southerners, and this culminated in a referendum that was held in 2011. And that referendum ensured the secession, the breaking away or the separation of South Sudan from the rest of Sudan. And that's where we are right now. Okay, that is very, very good. And again, I know we should all know this, but maybe some people don't. In on a map of Africa, where would the Sudan be? Sudan would be uh, in Eastern Africa, slightly close to the Horn of Africa, um, bordering Ethiopia on the east um, and um, uh, the Eastern African region, Kenya, Uganda, and okay. the Democratic Republic of Congo to the to the south. So okay. within that area. All right. So um, describe the situation as it is now, as you said, it may be one of the most troubled places in the globe. Why is that? What's going on there now that makes it so troubled? Unfortunately, after the secession of South Sudan, the um, the presiding government that came to power uh, with that secession uh, was not able to manage uh, internal conflict within within South Sudan within other political with other political entities in the country, and this culminated in a civil war that started just two years after independence, and uh, this war uh, has been raging. Um, it um, a peace agreement was uh, the war started in 2013. A peace agreement was signed in 2018. Um, the leaders of uh, the political parties to the conflict were very slow in implementing the peace agreement. This culminated in them being uh, someone to go to the Vatican uh, to meet the Pope uh, to impress upon them the idea that you have to really um, implement this peace agreement so that p- the, the dream of peace and stability can come to the people of South Sudan. And so... Uh, President Riyad, uh, President Salva Kiir, and the rebel leader uh, Riyad Machar, and other politicians went to the Vatican, and the Pope famously went down on his knees and kissed their feet and urged them to implement the peace agreement. And so they went back. Um, a government of national unity was formed, and they have started implementing the agreement. But uh, the implementation is slow, and there are many other uh, articles of the peace agreement that have not been implemented. And if they're not implemented, they risk returning the country to war. So, Brian, um, in Africa, I know there are different Christian groups. In South Sudan, how do the Christian groups break? Catholic, evangelical, Pentecostal? What are the different Christian groups that are there? There are many Christian groups, but the predominant Christian group is Catholic. Ah. And so you have uh, Anglicans and you have Presbyterians and others, uh, other small denominations. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. 
Um, so, um, Gaul asks, why'd they go to the Vatican? Well, they, they, they had signed a peace agreement, but they okay. were dra- the politicians were dragging their feet in implementing the, um, the agreement. And Christians all over the world, including the Catholic Church, was very concerned about this. And um, the leaders, um, and, and especially the president who happens to be Catholic, um, is sort of um, a, a devout person. He goes to church and he prays. And, and people thought that, well, if, if he takes his faith uh, seriously, um, if the Pope spoke to him, perhaps that would incentivize him um, to take, you know, the, uh, the, the, the majority of the, the, the decisions required to implement the peace agreement. And, and that, was the, that was the hope. And it seems from what you said, it was at least somewhat successful. Well, yes. After after the um, after the uh, after meeting the Pope, the the politicians that went there were 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 very touched. Um, they came back. Um, they started implementing the peace agreement um, um, and uh, the powering power sharing components of the peace agreement have been implemented. There's a process to unify the various armies that were at war with each other. Um, but there are certain tenets of the agreement that are still uh, behind transitional justice, um, uh, institutional reforms. So those are still behind. And, um, and, and then there are elections that are supposed to happen next year. And so everyone is urging them to sort of work hard on implementing the um, the, the other parts of the agreement so that elections can be held. And um, the expected visit of Pope Francis to South Sudan um, is going to shed light on the unimplemented aspects of this agreement and the suffering that's going on. And a, a lot of people, including me, hope that it will be an occasion um, that would um, um, urge world leaders also to refocus attention on South Sudan to get to get the politicians there to really work hard on implementing the peace agreement. Are the people of Sudan or South Sudan, they're looking forward to the Pope's visit? Oh, yes. Uh, as I had previously said, this is a predominantly Catholic state. Uh, and there are, as as I um, sit on, on my desk here and I look at social media, choirs are practicing, composing new songs for the arrival of the of, of Pope Francis. Um, there is um, construction going around in the in the city, revamping of uh, roads, filling of potholes. So uh, there's a lot of excitement in the air at the moment. I know there was some expressions of concern about security. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, well, as as you know, I mean. Even though we have a peace agreement, there are elements of um, of the political parties in South Sudan that have not signed on to the agreement, and so there is uh, there's that uh, there's at least one holdout rebel group that has not signed the peace agreement. Um, there is a parallel track actually being spearheaded by the Catholic Church in Saint Egidio in Rome. Um, that process is still ongoing, and then there's also. Um, Communal violence, you know, the war uh, wrecked the social fabric of the communities in South Sudan, um, exacerbated the issue of ethnicity. Um, and so you have conflicts around those 
areas, uh, communal conflicts. These are not poly- okay. Well, I think uh, Brian's uh, Zoom might have frozen. Um, and But I think we got a good idea of what Brian was speaking about. And what we'll do is we will take a break. And when we come back, uh, maybe we'll be able to reconnect with uh, with Brian. So just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We're speaking with Brian Adeba, who is the Deputy Director of Policy at The Century. Brian, I know we talked a little bit about the Pope's visit. What are your hopes and your expectations that either A, the Pope might speak about, 
or what might be a result that you hope his visit will bring about? Um, I hope that the Pope's visit will bring about a refocus on uh, completing the tenets of the peace agreement that have not been implemented. And and I think that's important. One particular uh, thorny issue is the um, issue of transitional justice, which needs to be taken into account to enable people to um, come, come back together again. And then there's also institutional reforms. So hold on, Brian, for a second. Yeah. I'm not sure that our listeners might not be familiar with that term, transitional justice. What does that mean? Oh, in, in very simple terms, it's um, it just means a process of uh, bringing people together. You know, it, during the war, um, there were atrocities that were committed against um against civilians against different um, people um in in south sudan so uh, it's a process of bringing people together to talk about um you know those atrocities to ask for forgiveness from each other and to move forward on and to hold those who had perpetuated egregious crimes accountable so that's that's what is meant in a snapshot uh, by the term transitional justice thank you that was very clear what else well, um, there's also, you know, the underlying issues of the war. One of them is corruption, state capture, which is, uh, you know, institutions of accountability working um, for a few people, uh, corruption, public looting of money. So I hope that the Pope's visit will refocus uh, attention on implementing the institutional re- reforms that are needed to um, arrest corruption and and uh, and you know prevent a return to conflict. Yeah. Now, um, I think when we discussed this on Just Love a number of years ago, when there was that uh, referendum in the separation of Sudan and South Sudan, was one of the issues I think was oil revenue because yes. of I think the reserves were in the south. But the refineries are in the north. Correct. That is. Is correct. that has that issue kind of been resolved? No, there are no refineries in the south at the moment. So the south exports all its oil through the north through pipes that are in the north. They rent these pipes uh, to a port uh, uh, and then for export to the global markets. Now, one of the concerning things about the oil revenue is that a lot of it is ending in the wrong hands, in the hands of a few people, a few elites, and it's not helping the people. And that is a major concern. It's a grievance that actually contributed to this conflict in the past, in the first place. When you say the wrong hands, you you mean the wrong hands in the South? In the South, yes. Yeah. And politicians, elite senior politicians and 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 uh, and and their associates. Right. Right. Yes. Well, Brian Adeba the Deputy Policy Director of the Century. Thank you for sharing with us your insights on South Sudan, and we'll continue to pray that uh, the progress that has been made, which seems, as you've said, is that there is good progress, but not enough. And there's still elements of the framework of that uh, peace agreement still need to be done, and we'll pray that the visit of Pope Francis Uh, moves those in a good and a right direction. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for hosting me. Great. Okay. Um, So, Tom, um, when you went to uh, Africa, did you you go to the Sudan? 
I landed actually in Sudan, Monsignor. It's interesting. Right. We landed in northern, what would be the Sudan. That's before the, se- the separation. But we were only there for a brief stopover. They opened, it's interesting, they opened the doors of the plane. So we were able to step out. So I could see kind of, cart- uh, I, I guess it was the, the, the city that was outside. Um, but we weren't able to leave. But I can tell you, Monsignor, it was, it was very warm. It was hot. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so we, but predominantly I went to Ethiopia and to Tanzania. I didn't, we didn't actually get a chance to visit South Sudan. When you went to Ethiopia, um, was there, where you visited, was there a sense of uh, the Jewish community, Jewish diaspora that were there? Not, not where we visited Monsignor. No, uh, it was predominantly uh, either we were with, um, you know, either Catholics like Roman Catholics or Ethiopian Orthodox. Uh, we visited a couple of Ethiopian Orthodox churches or uh, animists. So we kind of went out to the, you know, out, out, out to kind of the hinterlands and, and, and we visited some of the some of the communities there that I think would probably be, you know, animist communities. But I did not see. Yeah. I mean, that's why when um, when uh, Gideon was talking about that, I, I would love to see that. But I didn't see any, you know, I didn't see any, any indication of the Ethiopian Jewish community. Would you like to go back to Africa? I would love to. That's uh, I, to me, Monsignor, it was a life changing trip. You know, when you wind up going and seeing um, just, you know, the beauty of the people and just uh, and, and the beauty of the faith. You know, the thing that I loved was uh, when you go to church, it's Monsignor, it's an event. You know how here we just kind of almost sometimes, you know, well, let's go to mass. We go yeah. in, we stay 45 minutes there. It's hours and dancing and welcoming and the and the masses are so overflowing that the people coming out and greet the people going in so there's almost like a traffic jam so really it's it's a it's a really beautiful exciting place to go yeah. it really is if you went back where would you go uh if i went back this time i think i would because we didn't get a chance to spend a lot of time in kenya so i would go to kenya and i would also like to go to uh west africa i'd like to go tonight tonight to nigeria and okay. and I'd lo- and I'd love to go to South Africa because I I'm a big fan of Nelson Mandela so I I do okay. like to go I would like to go down to uh, to kind of see you know his history where he went to prison those things too yeah you know it's interesting I have not been to Africa and which a little footnote I did go to Sinai from Israel so I stepped foot into Africa but <laughs> I've not gone to uh, other places. So, um, you know, I would, uh, I, I would like to go, and, and I, I don't have a particular saying I want to go to this country, that country, or another country, but I think I would like to go to Africa to um, experience it in, in some way. But, um, Tom, well, thank you again for uh, booking our guests. Uh, very interesting conversations, very topical conversations. So to our listeners, just love. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Join us again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.